Thanks for joining us for the teaching portion of our online gathering, Reality Family. Before I get started, I wanted to uh, let you know that there is a sermon outline up on our website. I've heard from a few people that that would help them follow along uh, through the preaching and take notes. So I've created one for you um, and I uh, encourage you to go there, realityvancouver.church and grab it before we get started. And uh, always open to hearing feedback from you. If you have other thoughts or ways that I can make that better or more usable for you, please don't hesitate to let me know. We are on our second pass-through in the Gospel of Mark. The first pass-through, we looked at Jesus' life, who he is as the king who brings the kingdom. And in the second pass-through, we're looking at the, through the lens of discipleship. So week number one, we, we looked at Mark chapter one, where Jesus invites the first disciples with these words, follow me and I will make you become fishers of people. And then last week, we looked at a story of Jesus, a parable, where he talks about six different kinds of soils that receive this word and this invitation. And there's three soils that are unfruitful, one where the seed or the invitation is snatched away, the second where it's scandalized, and the third where it's choked out with other worries. And then three kinds of soil that are fruitful, 30, 60, and 100 times. And today we're going to continue on in our journey of looking at discipleship, uh, what it means to follow Jesus by looking at two passages in Mark 9 and Mark 10. So I invite you to join with me as we read those together. First from Mark 9, verse 33 to 37. Then they, they, or they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And now on to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. This is God's word. So in this passage, or in these passages, we hear another qualification from Jesus of what it means to be his disciple. He says that if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and the servant of all. This is a quality of the disciple of Jesus. And then he uses an object lesson, um, which some uh, theologians call an enacted parable. Last week we saw a parable, which is a story. This is an enacted parable, a parable that he's living out. And it's, it's uh, an invitation to imagine a world like this. Imagine a world where a kingdom isn't given to leaders or to royal people, but actually given over to children. Those are the people who receive and can enter it. Now, in our culture, we might resonate with those words of Jesus because we value children a lot. We value children's education. We look at them as vulnerable people, as people to protect and uh, to help grow. And we, we love the innocence of children. But at the time of the gospel writing, the children were not valued in the same way. Listen to how one commentator, David Garland, talks about children in this time. So Jesus does not set up the child as a model to be imitated, for his culture had no romanticized notion about children. They were not regarded as especially obedient, trusting, simple, innocent, pure, unselfconscious, or humble. 
The point of comparison is the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. The child had no power, no status, and few rights. A child was dependent, vulnerable, entirely subject to the authority of the father in this culture. Another commentator says, to be a child in the first century was to be a nobody. Another commentator said to be a no person, that you had no personhood, no value in that society. And we've seen so far in the gospel how Jesus is continually drawn to these nobodies. He goes to them, he ministers to them, and he offers the kingdom of God to them. And that's what he's doing in this passage today. And Jesus says in Mark 10 that if we are to receive the, the kingdom, we also must receive it like children. We become like children and learn to become a servant, not to be first, but to be last, to be a nobody, basically. That rather for vying for status like the disciples are doing in this passage, we're to take a low position on the honor scale. And rather than trying to be the greatest, we are to take a lowly position. And that was the opposite direction of the world at the time, and probably much of our world today. Um, they were obsessed with status and climbing up the uh, social pyramid. In fact, uh, in the Roman society, it was really like that. It was like a very, very steep pyramid with few people at the top and a lot of people at the bottom underneath serving. And the whole uh, social structure was to serve the people at the top. It was geared towards those few who had power. But this is not the way of Jesus, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, or is it to be the way of his followers? Let me remind you of a passage we've looked at already in Mark 10. Jesus says, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. Again, this restatement of the same theme. And he closes by saying this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we as followers of Jesus aren't called to follow this societal ladder climbing, but we're to model our leadership in our lives after Jesus, our King. And although he's Jesus Christ, he's the Son of God, he's the cosmic King, he chooses this path of service and of dying and giving his life over as a ransom. And he has to go all the way, not just to serving, but all the way to the cross to do this. We saw this at the end of um, Mark chapter eight, that this is called the divine must. Jesus is headed there. He must go towards the cross. And theologian Michael Gorman speaks of this pattern in Jesus' life using this formula. He says, although X, not Y, but Z. Although X, not Y, but Z. He's saying, although he has status, he doesn't choose not selfishness, but selflessness. Although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. This is the pattern of Jesus' life. And in Philippians 2, uh, we studied this last summer, this beautiful, great hymn about Jesus. It's very clearly reflected in this way. Although Jesus is God, he doesn't choose equality, but service. And although he is a man, he doesn't choose the status of a king, but rather humility and death. And the same pattern is reflected in the Gospel of Mark. Although Jesus is the Messiah, he didn't come to take the path of glory, but to suffer and die many things, to be rejected and killed and rise after three days. Mark 10 would say it this way, although Jesus is the Son of Man, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Gorman calls this process 
the purposeful downward movement of Jesus, very similar to what we've been calling it in the Gospel of Mark, this path of downward mobility, which we stole from Henry Nouwen. And a couple months ago, we talked about why Jesus has to take this path of downward mobility. Today, we're going to ask the question in a slightly different way. What does it mean for us to do it? And why do we have to go on this path? Why is it as, so important as his followers to become servants, to become the least, to become nobodies, and to follow this formula, although X, not Y, but Z? And I want to give us three reasons from the passage today of why it's so important that as followers of Jesus, we also take the path of downward mobility. The first is that walking the path of humble service is where we meet Jesus. Walking the path of humble service is where we meet Jesus. I've said it several times in this series, but I'll, I'll say it again today, that the people in the Gospel of Mark who see Jesus most clearly are those who are humbled people. They are the nobodies, the no persons at that time. And in the stories that we looked at today, the passages that we read, the people who get Jesus are these children. He takes them in his arms in both of the passages. He welcomes them and he hugs them. And even though the disciples are coming to Jesus for a blessing, it's actually the children who receive the blessing from Jesus. And he lays his hands on them. So it's the humble who see that Jesus is God. That he is a God who would stoop, makes sense to them, as one theologian would say. Or as the, the, the theological language, they understand that Jesus is a cruciform God. They, they get this picture, that suffering and humility are key to the character of who Jesus is because they're key to the character of God. And that he meets us most when in his humility and eventually at the cross. That's where he becomes ultimately relatable to us. And those who are on the downward path get that this crucified king is Jesus Christ, son of God. So let's try to make this practical for us. What does it mean in our own lives if we are to pursue this humble path of being wanting to see Jesus? Well, last week I shared a story from my own life. We were talking about the six soils and I shared about a time that I was scandalized by Jesus. Um, if you didn't listen, uh, how dare you, first of all, but uh, let me just recap quickly. Um, I, I joined into ministry and moved to Vancouver with my wife, Sarah, and it was not my plan A at all. And I also grew up in a place where everybody had a house. Everybody I knew had a house, whether it was a good house or a bad house, unless you had done something catastrophically wrong, you owned a house. And so when I moved here, I slowly had the realization that we would not be likely getting a house in Vancouver. And it, it brought up many emotions in me. I felt a lot of shame, actually. I felt shame that I wasn't living up to my expectations and, and that I was failing my wife and, and my, at that point, future family and kids. I felt anger, anger towards other people, anger towards the government, anger towards God. And I had this scandalizing moment with God, this moment where I was, I was wondering, how dare you? How could you ask me to follow you like this and then not meet my expectations, not give me this good thing that I deserve? And you could say that my formula, the formula of my life was set to, I am X, so I deserve Y. I have this status, so I should get this thing. I am a good Christian, so I deserve to have a house. Would have been the way I would have said it. Probably never said it that well, when, or that clearly, especially when you say it like that. It does sound a little terrible. 
And, um, uh, but, but it was, it was the desire of my heart. It was the story of my life. And it's very similar actually to the disciples in this passage. We got to remember they've given up everything to follow Jesus. He's called them to follow from their boats. They're fishing with their family. So that's their livelihood. That's their familial relationships. That's their inheritance. Um, that's everything that they've known. And they've walked away from that to follow Jesus. And so when they come to him asking if they are going to be the greatest, what position am I going to take in your kingdom? That's why they've left their boats. They've left their boats in the hope that they will have some sort of great position in God's kingdom. I've said this before, but it's like they're, they're at a very small startup with the promise of, of a really big payoff later. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're asking, hey, we've been putting in a lot of sweat equity. We've left everything. We've followed you. We're working long hours. When is this going to pay off? When are we going to be able to cash in? And their life and my life was set on the same formula. Because I'm X, I've identified with Jesus. Therefore, I deserve Y. I'm a follower of Jesus. Therefore, you should meet my elevator or my escalator story of expectations. Whatever I think the trajectory of my life should be in the timeline of my life should be, Jesus should meet it. And when my escalator stalled out, when, when he didn't meet one of those things, namely a house, I had a moment of scandal. And I started to wrestle with God. Amidst all those emotions I was feeling, I, I started to wrestle with God. And I began to see that a different formula was at work in his life. That Jesus didn't operate on because I am X, because I am God, therefore I deserve this. But his life was on the formula that Michael Gorman says, although X, not Y, but Z. Although Jesus is one with God, he didn't go for equality, but he chose service. Although Jesus had dwelt since the beginning of time with God in his heavenly home in perfect community with God, he didn't stay there. He didn't just hang out in that perfect place, whatever that heavenly community looks like and, you know, trick out his basement to make a great man cave. Instead, he left all of that. He left that home. He left that comfort. And he came here where it says in the Gospels that he had no place to lie his head. And he walked the downward path of humility to serve me and to serve you even to the point of death. A passage that became very meaningful for me was John 1.14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Eugene Peterson translates that in the message, that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus left it all. This eternal God, one with God, left it all to become a man and move into our neighborhood. And the words that we just read in Mark 10 became a talisman for me. This, this passage where Jesus says, on the contrary, on the contrary, not X, that your status, therefore you deserve something, but on the contrary, whoever wants to become great, whatever you think you deserve, uh, the, the, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first will be slave to all. And it's his life that we reflect for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And by looking at the life of Jesus in passages like this, I met Jesus. I met this crucified king and, see, and saw how he offered his story to me. That he offered this formula to me for my life as well. And I was humbled in staring at Jesus and it allowed me in some small way by being humbled, by letting go of that, that dream that I had to actually receive the kingdom in some way. This incomparable inheritance that we have in the gospel and the life of Jesus. And here's what I found. 
You know, would I like to own a house in Vancouver? Sure. You know, if you're offering, um, I'll give you my number. You can just message me. But there, and are there times when I still get very frustrated or angry about the inequalities of the Vancouver housing market? Absolutely. But by taking on this life of Jesus, by exchanging my rights for his life, I actually found that I'm free. What, what Jesus says in this passage was true, that Jesus has ransomed me. I'm free from worrying about this all the time and making it the driving purpose of my life. And, and it's not that it hasn't popped up again and again in my life, so this desire for a house or this feeling like I deserve it, but in that time, I'm able to take this formula and lay it over my life. Look at the life of Jesus and say, not X, but Y. Or, uh, uh, although X, not Y, but Z. And I'm able to celebrate. I'm able to celebrate with other people who have been able to buy places. I'm not angry at them. I'm free actually to be a good friend. And I'm thankful for all of the places that our family has been fortunate enough to live in, that we have never gone uh, a day without being having a place to live. And so that's one way that it's played out in my life, in my story. Now, some of you might deeply resonate with that. I know the housing market is something that's uh, on our minds all the time. Um, some of you may not. But like I said last week, we all have these scandalizing moments with God. We all have this, diff we have escalators of expectations that we've set up in our discipleship with Jesus. I'll follow you and you provide why for me. Maybe it's related to comfort or relationships or your kids or your health or your work. And these are great conversations to have in your community group and with your partner. It's just where are you living out of your own formula? If we want to receive God's blessing, if we want to receive the kingdom of God, then we have to learn in these moments where we feel scandalized by Jesus to adopt the same attitude of Jesus as it says in Philippians 2 or to hear the Jesus say on the contrary as he says in Mark 10 to become like children, not to throw a, a childlike um, tantrum, but in our humbled state, by looking at the person of Jesus, to see that it might be a place where Jesus is stripping away things in us so that we can become like children and receive his kingdom. So it's in Jesus' death experience that we see him most clearly as the humbled and, and broken savior, and we can receive him as that, as humbled and broken people. And it's when we're open to having our own death experience, to becoming nobodies, that we are able to meet Jesus. And it's where we open ourselves up through this uh, gutting of ourselves to the power of the resurrection. It's in becoming a child where we learn to receive the kingdom. So that's the first point. The second point is that becoming a nobody in the kingdom of God is where we actively participate in the divine life. Becoming a nobody in the kingdom of God is where we actively participate in the divine life. The invitation to discipleship is an invitation to follow Jesus, as we've seen. Follow me, he says. It's an invitation to welcome God's word, to be hospitable to it and bear fruit. But it's also an invitation to be humbled and serve. And this invitation to be humbled and serve is also an invitation to participate and practice the life of Jesus, to be part of the divine life. And Paul understood this. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body, that is the church. I have become its servant, these same words of Jesus, according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we sing these last words, Christ in me, the hope of glory, and of course they're true from this passage, but look at what comes a little bit earlier, this rejoicing in suffering. Paul, For Paul, his suffering is participating in the life of God. And he's so tightly intertwined with this picture, with the divine life, that he says his sufferings actually make up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That his participation in suffering is actually participation in Christ's life, which is just crazy. And Paul understood this, and early martyrs also understood this. I've been studying their lives a little bit, and if you're not familiar with martyrs, uh, Robin Darling Young gives a great definition. She says, "A, a martyr, a person dying for their faith, was a public liturgical sacrifice in which the word of Jesus and his kingdom was confessed and acted out, an offering made that repeated his own. And she uses the same idea that martyrs were people who understood their lives to be a sacrifice, just like Jesus' life was a sacrifice, this participation in the divine life. And recently I listened to a talk by one of my favorite uh, theologians, Dr. Lynn Kohick, called Motherhood and Martyrdom. Uh, It had such an interesting name, I had to listen. And it was very fascinating. It was based on the diary of of a young wife named Perpetua. She had a husband and a young child and she had recently become a Christian. And she refused to give a sacrifice to the emperor, which in that society and at that time amounted to treason. And so she goes uh, into jail and goes in front of the emperor and is pronounced to die in the Colosseum. And she gives a birth to a baby in that time and then goes into the Colosseum to be killed for being a follower of Jesus. And she compares her martyrdom to giving birth in her diary, that it's painful but it brings joy, just like being a mother. And both of these things, motherhood and martyrdom, are pictures of participating in the divine life of Christ for this woman. The giving of your body in both motherhood and martyrdom are participating in the life of Jesus, just like he gave his body for us. And it's participating in giving yourself up, all three of these, so that someone else, others may have new life. And, and Dr. Kohik says that the stories of martyrs are actually so bizarre to us as modern readers. When we read them, we feel like we need a compass to navigate their words because the way that Perpetua looks at her life and her world is so absolutely foreign to us. Now, I'm, I'm so glad that we're not martyred for our faith today in, in Canada or in Vancouver, and I don't glorify those times. I don't say, let's go back there. And I'm repulsed by the violence that we see in these stories. But I'm also absolutely floored by the, the, the faith of this young woman, of this young mother. And I notice how different it is than mine. You know, I think so often I, my discipleship with Jesus has less resen- resembled perpetuous faith and much more looked like a teenager going on a road trip with my family. You know, I'll get in the car because I have to, because I'm part of this family, but I'm just going to sit in the back and I'm going to throw my headphones on and I'm going to play on my phone and go along for the ride continually asking, when are we going to get there? That's been more of my discipleship journey and less like Perpetua. But that's not how Jesus looks at it. That's not how Paul looks at it. And that's not how Perpetua looks at discipleship with Jesus. For them, becoming a non-person, becoming nothing and even losing your life, pouring yourself out in service was an honor because it was participating in what God is doing in the world and what we saw Jesus do when he was here in the world. 
Suffering and serving and dying aren't the lack of God's presence in our lives, but instead they may be the exact place in discipleship where we're called to participate in the life of the divine. Finally, actively participating in becoming like a nobody to receive the kingdom of God is also a path for ministering to others. So not only is it the place that we meet Jesus, not only is it the place where we experience the divine life, but it's the place where we can offer that ministry to other people. It's in Jesus' death experience, like I said, that we see him most clearly as people who are broken and humbled. When Jesus empties himself and becomes a nobody, we can relate to him. And when we're open to having our own death experiences, to becoming nobodies, that's where we meet Jesus and where we also experience the power of the resurrection in our willingness to become, to die, have our own death experiences, where we open ourselves up to the power of the resurrection. And then when we've done this, we're living as humbled servants. It's the place where we will also be able to minister to others as humble servants. It's because at the place of others' death experiences, where they're feeling emptied, where they're feeling humbled, where they're feeling like nobodied, that's the place that people are most open to the resurrection and the power of Jesus in their lives. And if we are there with them, serving them in those moments, it's where we'll be able to share the power of the resurrection and the humility of Jesus with them. These are places of ministry today. That's why it's so important that we get on the path of downward mobility. And that's where I want to leave us today. Because Jesus says, whoever welcomes a little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. So the question really for us is how do we open our lives up to welcome children and those who are nobodies and no persons in our world? Well, I think, first of all, I just want to say our church is, is phenomenal at doing this. I think it's one of the things that draws many of us here to be part of a community at Reality. And it started with uh, the first, the founding family, the Martins at Reality. They had such a wonderful, open and hospitable spirit among them. They were always bringing more, even though they had six kids themselves, they were always bringing more and more kids around. In fact, I don't even know if they had six kids. I, I, the number always seemed to be five, 10, 12. They're just always opening themselves up to more and more people. And that infused into our church community and into the lives of many of us. And the beautiful resonances that we have in our community of people ministering and, and going out in humble service are reflections of Jesus and reflections of the Martins and that DNA in our community. And so the things I'm mentioning that we've seen in our community are not to say, hey, we, we're not doing these things. We really need to get up and doing them, but just an encouragement to keep going and to keep encouraging others to take part in things like adoption, in babysitting for others when we're allowed to and able, serving in kids ministry again when we're allowed to and able. We have a day camp coming up that's always been a highlight for, for kids and families and have, has wide reach uh, throughout our neighborhood. This is one thing that you can volunteer for just in an active way of humbling yourself and, and welcoming children and welcoming God. And you want to get involved with that? Day camp at realityvancouver.com. Email them and, and ask them how you can get involved. 
be involved in the lives of the children around you in the places that you are. You can join a, a ministry like Move In or talk to Alex Dykstra, who's part of our community and one of our missionary partners about how you might uh, do what they're doing, moving in with, with people who are economically deprived or new refugees uh, in our city and in our world. All of these are things, like I said, that are already happening in our community. We're so privileged to be a part of them and I wanna highlight them and encourage us to continue to step into these things as a way of ministering to others, meeting Jesus, like I said, participating in the divine life and ministering to other people. And finally, I wanted to end with a word for parents. Uh, that's many of us in our community and especially so many now with young uh, kids in these past few years. And parenting for me is a mix of awe-filled, glorious moments of blessing with kids that, that are just priceless. They're some of the most priceless moments in my life. I wouldn't trade them for even a house, for anything in the world. I think of just holding my kids for the first time or speaking their names over them for the first time. Like it, it almost makes me emotional just to, to think and talk about the resonance and the glory of those moments. And there's easy, really easy moments to feel the blessing and presence of God with me and with us in those moments. But parenting is also a lot of mundane moments too. Uh, there's, you know, especially when our kids were younger, there's just moments of intense repetition. I remember just saying like, I can't read Chicka Chicka Boom Boom again. I can't read it one more time. I've read it so many times. I've memorized all the words. I just can't do it again. And it's just that repetition or walking them to school, back in school, forth from school again and again, this repetition of life with them. Or the same conversations, our kids are a little older now, the same conversations with them again and again and again. No, that friend is not just your friend, they're everyone's friend. We had this conversation yesterday, let's not have it again tomorrow. These, these mundane moments of repetition are also around and, and I find for myself that those are really difficult moments. As much as the, the glorious moments are really easy to sense God's presence and be thankful for, the mundane moments are really hard to recognize God's presence. You know, I rarely walk away from reading Chicka Chicka Boom Boom for the 30th time and both like, that was just a blessed time. And I think a challenge from this passage for those of us who, who do have kids is to see every parenting moment as a moment of divine welcome. I'll close with these words from David Fitch. He wrote a book called uh, The Seven um, Practices of Faithful Presence. And he talks about seven practices of the church. And, and one of the things that stood out to me, you know, many of them would be things that we'd think of, of course, you know, the church should share the gospel, the church should um, do this, the, the sacraments. But he says it, one of them is spending time with children. And he takes his cues from this passage. He writes, Jesus says the all important words. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He uses the important word welcome, dekomai in Greek, which is used elsewhere for the way that strangers receive missionaries sent by Jesus into their homes in his name. It's used to describe the patience one must have to hear Paul in the midst of his foolishness. Maybe this is some of the patience you've developed in, in listening to me in my foolishness. It's used to describe the posture of receiving generosity and love. It connotes patience, embrace, openness, and genuineness. Does that describe your parenting, my parenting? It communicates the posture of receiving someone into my very presence. Jesus says, when you do this with a child, you enter the very kingdom of God. And when you receive a child into your presence, you also receive the presence of Jesus. A space is opened up where God can work. 
It's a space where God in Christ not only transforms children's lives, but the adults in the space as well. I think this passage, as I reflected it on myself, for myself and my life, I want to share with you, for those of us who are parents, that every moment of parenting can be this sacred moment, that when we choose to humble ourselves, which isn't saying that we're shirking our responsibilities as parents, but we choose to humble ourselves and serve and see that even in our serving in these mundane moments, God is a space that God can come into. He is present with us there. Just like when we talked about friendship. In friendship, I said there is never just two, there are always three. God and you and your friend. It's the same in parenting. That there's never a mundane moment in parenting because God is always there. It's always sacred space if we take this perspective of welcoming him in. What would that do to our parenting and the way that we looked at those mundane moments with our children? Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this word uh, and your invitation. Although it sounds, it is very hard. It's an invitation to service. It's an invitation to humility. And you even use the word elsewhere in the gospel to die. But this is also an invitation to be with you, to see you, and to meet you. It's an invitation for us to participate in the divine life, to actually be your followers, and to join with you in the way that you did in knowing you and knowing God and knowing the Holy Spirit and knowing one another. And it's also a place where we can learn to minister to other people in the way that you have when we humble, humbly serve those around us. So would you make us into those people? Help us to meet you. Help us to experience the power of the divine life. And I pray that through our, our humble service that we would look more like you. And as we join people in those places of humility and openness, that we would also reflect your grace and your goodness into the world and that we would see your resurrection power unleashed in lives around us in this city. We pray these things in the great and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>